0: Hi there! Welcome to Explain This, a podcast where we try to explain complex things in simpler ways for people of all ages. I'm your host Jen Kim, and today we'll talk about the hot topic of inflation, and how it impacts your money. Let's get started. Let's face it, 2022 hasn't been the best year for the world. COVID-19 still around, coming in relentless waves a greedy nation invaded another sovereign nation to cause a senseless war, and there's so much disinformation and extremism happening everywhere that it feels like we're delving deeper and deeper into the dark timeline. Or some messed up simulation. But until proven otherwise, this is the reality we live in, so the best we can do is try to understand what's happening, so we don't get completely blindsided. On the topic, another topic you've probably been hearing a lot about lately is that of the economy. Around the world, countries are facing serious economic problems, with words like unemployment, supply shock, and official cash rate coming up often in the news. But above all that, you've probably at least heard of the term inflation and how it's getting dangerously high. So to help you understand a little more about what is happening to these economies, today we're going to talk about inflation, what it is, how it happens, what can happen if it gets out of control, and how we can try to control it. As usual, let's start by explaining what inflation is to you, as if you're a child. Let's say that you got $5 of pocket money each week to spend on whatever you think is important. Because you're lucky and privileged, you don't have to pay the bills, rent, groceries next to your parents. Hooray! You can spend the $5 on things that you want and makes you happy, like ice cream let's say that the ice cream you like costs $4. That's good, you can afford that. Every week, you get your hard-earned pocket money, take it to the ice cream store, buy delicious cookies and cream ice cream, take $4 away from your $5 of pocket money, and yay, you can afford the ice cream and save $1. If you're a good kid and put that dollar away in a piggy bank, instead of blowing it all on candy, then in five weeks' time, you can afford an extra ice cream. Ugh. It sounds like paradise, but unfortunately, it's the real life. So things change, and not always for the better. The kids around the neighborhood hear about the sweet deal you have with your parents and ask their parents for pocket money too. Now, all the other kids like Phineas, Ferb, Isabella, and Candace, all get $5 per week as well, and they all go to the ice cream store to buy a $4 ice cream each week. This is good, right? Everyone screams for ice cream! Uh, but because so many kids are coming every week to a store demanding ice cream, Linda, the ice cream store owner, figures that she can up the price of the ice cream a bit. After all, these kids have $5 to spend each week, so why not charge $5 for the ice cream? If they don't want to pay extra, they'll just have to live with no ice cream. Ugh, the horror. And Linda's right. All the kids are happy to pay $5 for ice cream because ice cream is great. So the price goes up, and Linda makes more cash money. Unfortunately for you, that means you can't save up a dollar every week to get that extra ice cream on the fifth week. A month later, tragedy strikes. One of the ice cream delivery vans breaks down, so Linda only gets half the amount of ice cream that she normally gets to sell, meaning she can only supply the neighborhood kids with half the amount of ice cream. Linda doesn't want to earn half the amount of money because she needs to pay her ice cream scooper Jeremy $20 every week. So to make up for this loss, Linda jacks up the price of ice cream to a whopping $7 per ice cream. Sorry kids, but bills need to be paid. This sucks. Now you can't afford an ice cream a week. You'll have to save up one week, then buy ice cream the next week when you have $10 saved up. Basically, your pocket money has less power to buy ice cream. It needs to charge up a turn first, like Solar Beam if you get the reference. That said, all the kids, including you, need ice cream. So you keep saving up and buying ice cream even if the price is high. And because parents keep giving all of you enough pocket money, Linda gets a steady line of customers demanding her ice cream. So every month she slowly ups the price of ice cream because she only has so much ice cream to sell and there's a lot of pocket money going around to pay for the increasingly expensive ice cream. By the end of the year, it's gotten to the stage where it's $10 a pop, meaning you're having to pay double for the same ice cream. The ice cream isn't any better, so why do you have to pay more for it? This, my friend, is the danger of inflation. Welcome back. Even if you don't know anything about inflation, you certainly would have seen it happen around you. In the most basic sense, inflation is when the price of things you want to buy keeps rising with time, whether it be physical goods like Pokemon cards, or services like getting a massage. Inflation isn't that sneaky, because we can see it happening right in front of us. Even in the last year we've seen prices of pretty much everything go up, from food to fuel to bicycles to cars to wood Everything seems to be pricier this year compared to last year. Some of these things are variable, like fuel prices seem to go up and down, but other things like cars seem to just be going up and up and up. And it's not a new thing either. You probably remember a Big Mac being much cheaper when you were a kid compared to now. I also swear they used to be bigger than they are now, but that's a different concept called shrinkflation. Let's take an example, movie ticket prices. Technology has gotten better and better and better with the years, but the experience of watching a movie hasn't fundamentally changed. You buy a ticket, sit in a chair in a cinema, and watch a movie. The end. In the US, the price of a movie ticket is around $9.50, at least in 2021 it was. But back in 1939, the price of a movie ticket was 23 cents. You can see examples of this in every good or service. Talk to your parents and they'll tell you how different prices were when they were young compared to now. But you probably already know that it isn't a fair comparison, because one US dollar in 1939 had a different value to 2021. We like to think that money has an absolute value, because it seems like the base unit of our economy, like how a meter is a meter, and a kilogram is a kilogram, no matter where you are. Unless you're American and you use inferior standardized units. Come on. But as we explored in episode 22 where we discussed cryptocurrency, money is actually very complex, and so the value of money can change. Essentially, one US dollar was worth a lot more in 1939 compared to one US dollar now. This meant that people were paying less for everything in terms of the absolute number value, but they were also being paid less. In 1939, the average American salary was around $1368, whereas now it's more like $74,738. So even though it looks like movie ticket prices jumped 40 times, annual salaries jumped 55 times. This is why when economists study price, they make the distinction of what's called the nominal price, which is the pure number that you see on a price tag, compared to the real price, which is the price adjusted for the value of money at the time. So, going back to inflation, it's not that prices are going up every year per se, but the value of money that's going down. Inflation essentially makes your money worth less and less every year. Well, this seems unfair, doesn't it? What's the point of working hard and earning money if it's just going to degrade in value over time? Why put money in the bank at all? Shouldn't I just spend the money while it has the most amount of value? To answer all of these questions, we need to understand why inflation happens and why the value of money changes. For this, let's go back to Economics 101 so we can understand how demand and supply works. Economics seems extremely complex and intricate with countless variables and dynamic change and chaos. But if you delve really deeply, most of economics relies on two very basic laws. The law of demand, and the law of supply. Just understanding these two principles lets you understand so much more about the economy. It's like learning the alphabet before learning the language. Let's use our ice cream example from before to illustrate these two laws. If lots and lots of people want to buy your ice cream, then you can charge more money per ice cream because people are more desperate for it. Or in technical terms, if the quantity demanded goes up, the price can be higher. The opposite also holds true. If the price is lower, quantity demanded goes up because more people want to buy cheap ice cream. Whereas if the price is going higher, quantity demand will eventually go down, but you're making more money because the price is higher. If you put this on a graph where you have quantity on the horizontal x-axis and price on the vertical y-axis, this plot says a line that slopes towards the bottom right. This is called the demand curve, which represents the law of demand. As price increases, quantity demanded decreases. I mean, think about it. If an ice cream costs $7, you're probably less likely to buy it than when it was $4. The law of supply is the opposite to this. If price is higher, then suppliers are willing to sell more items because it's lucrative. As in, the quantity supplied goes up. This supply curve goes the opposite direction. It points upwards towards the top right of the graph. So if you combine these two laws on the same graph, you get a lovely big X shape. The point where the two curves cross over is called the market equilibrium. At this point, the price is just right. So the quantity demanded matches quantity supplied exactly. So everyone's happy. This is the bare bones of the laws of demand and supply. Essentially, this one simple graph helps us understand how various changes in factors affect the economy. For example, Let's say that the market equilibrium price for ice cream is $5. At this price, the neighborhood kids will buy 10 ice creams in total, and the ice cream shop owner is willing to sell 10 ice creams. Perfect. But if the government was to artificially set a limit on ice cream price, say to $4, more kids will want more ice cream because it's cheaper, say 15 ice creams total. But the shop owner will say it's not worth selling at $4 and only want to sell 7 ice creams because they'd rather sell other things, like milkshakes. Now there's a shortage because there's too much demand at that price and not enough supply. In a free market, that is, a market that is left alone and not interfered with by the government, the laws of supply and demand naturally shift the prices and quantities until an equilibrium is met. It's a beautiful self-correcting phenomenon that the father of economics, Adam Smith, described as the invisible hand. That said, it's not a perfect system, as history has shown. If left completely unchecked, market forces can run rampant or turn into vicious cycles that can cause catastrophic damages to economies, such as hyperinflation, or recessions such as the Great Depression. So, now that we know how price affects and is affected by demand and supply, let's talk about how prices can rise over time, even if the product being sold hasn't changed. We've talked about two definitions for inflation so far. One is the rise of price of goods and services over time. Two is the decrease in the worth of money. Now that we know how demand and supply work, we can add a third definition. Inflation is essentially when there is too much demand for too little supply, or even more simply, there's too much money chasing too little actual products. Put it this way, let's say you won the lottery and suddenly had $10 million to spend. Think of all the ice creams you can buy now. Because you have a lot more money, your demand for goods and services go up, because you can afford it. So the quantity demanded goes up. You can buy a new car that you wouldn't have wanted last week, and you might eat out every meal of the week instead of buying cheaper groceries. Hell, you might buy 10 ice creams because you can. But unfortunately for you, apparently everyone else in your town also won the lottery, because of some weird computer glitch. Now everyone else has $10 million spare cash as well, and they all want new cars and fridges and whatnot. This means that the overall demand for goods and services have now all increased and everyone has enough money to pay for their demands. But if the supply hasn't changed, then the shops selling these goods won't be able to meet the demands, so instead they'll just raise the price. Makes sense, right? This way only people who really want the goods will buy it because they're willing to pay the extra price. So now the price goes up for all of these goods. Cars, fridges, food, all of them. It'll keep going up and up and up as the consumers with 10 million dollars compete with each other by offering to pay more and more until people have to pay exorbitant prices for anything. Congratulations! Your 10 million dollars isn't worth as much as you thought. This is an extreme example, but it helps highlight what inflation looks like. As an economy grows, there'll be more and more money available for people to spend, and demand grows as well. But if demand grows faster than supply, prices will grow and grow and grow as well. This is problematic because you'd think getting more money should be an exciting thing, but it's not exciting if you can't buy more stuff with that money. It's why people talk about inflation like it's the boogeyman, because it makes your money worth less and less. And for that reason, economists are really interested in monitoring inflation. So let's talk about how we actually measure inflation. The way we measure inflation is actually quite simple. We just track prices of goods and report what percentage change there is in the price of each year. So if a loaf of bread costs $10 in 2021, then $11 in 2022, then that's a $1 increase, which is 10% of $10. Therefore, the inflation rate of bread prices would have been 10%. If this same inflation rate was to continue, the price of bread would rise 10% each year. So, $12.10 in 2023, $13.31 in 2024, and so forth. Over time, the prices grow exponentially because of compounding. Go back and listen to episode 4 to learn all about compound interest and exponential growth. Now, you might see one problem with this example. Surely we don't just look at the price of bread to track inflation of an entire economy? What if there's a new diet fad where you only eat bread, so demand shoots up for bread? Or there's a flour shortage, so the price of bread shoots up? In these scenarios, other goods and services might not increase in price at the same rate, so the inflation rate would be inaccurate. Because of this exact reason, economists don't just look at one product's price. They look at a basket of consumer goods. Essentially, they make a sample collection of goods and services that are deemed a normal purchase by the average consumer household. This includes groceries, rent, fuel, utilities, etc. Then they'll take all of the prices and add it up. Each year, they'll measure the prices again, then compare it to the year before. If you take the price of the basket in the second year, then divide it by the price of the basket in the first year, you get a ratio, called the Consumer Price Index, or CPI. For example, let's say the entire basket of goods cost $1,000 in 2021, then $1,020 in 2022. 1020 divided by 1000 is 1.02, which means that the inflation rate was 2%. This means that on average, the cost of living went up by 2% in the space of one year. Great, so prices are slowly going up. What's the big deal with that? Well, the biggest issue is that if your wages and income aren't going up at the same rate, then you'll have a problem. Let's say you earn $100,000 per year after tax to make things easier. With that amount of money, you could buy 100 consumer baskets in 2021 worth $1,000, right? But in 2022, Because of inflation, you can now only buy 98 consumer baskets. Over time, you'll be able to buy less and less with the same wage, which means your money is less valuable. We call this purchasing power, which is the real important figure when it comes to your income, not the dollar amount. We saw this in the lottery example. It doesn't matter if you're earning $10 million if everything costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. What does matter is how many things you can actually buy with your money which is the purchasing power. This is why you'll often hear in the news workers and unions asking for a pay rise that at least matches the inflation rate. Because if you don't, then these people are effectively getting a pay cut because their purchasing power is getting lower each year. Even if you get a 2% pay rise, if the inflation rate is 5%, you're effectively getting a pay cut of 3%. In that scenario, even a 5% pay rise isn't actually giving you any more money in a real sense. It's just matching it. Okay, that doesn't sound nice at all. It means that even if you work hard at your job to get a decent income, with time and inflation, it'll all become worth less and less. And who wants less money in pay? It sounds like so far, there's nothing good about inflation, and we should do everything in our power to stop it from ever happening, right? Well, here's the weird thing. Inflation isn't all bad. For one, it's a natural symptom of the economy's own growth. Demand and supply are necessary forces to keep an economy flowing and a small amount of inflation is almost a healthy thing. Modern economists largely agree that a small, sustainable inflation of about 1-3% is just the right amount to keep the economy growing, without the horrible consequences of inflation. Having a small amount of inflation actually protects us from having a severe recession because it lets labour markets respond quickly and reduces the risk of a nasty situation called a liquidity trap. This is why economists closely monitor the consumer price index and the inflation rate, because they want it in that tight band of 1-3%. But what happens if the inflation rate soars past that band, like the 7-8% we're seeing in countries like New Zealand and the US this year? What if, God forbid, you have inflation go even higher than that? And is there anything we can do to stop inflation from getting higher? Well, yes, yes there is. We'll go on a short break, but after we come back, we'll talk about what happens when inflation is out of control and what governments can do to curb inflation's enthusiasm. Welcome back. So, just to recap, inflation is basically the rise of prices over time, because too much money is chasing too few goods. And that makes money worth less, which in fancy terms is what we call less purchasing power. We do want a teeny tiny amount of inflation because if the inflation rate is 0% or negative, we get something called deflation instead. Deflation is literally the opposite of inflation. Every year, the purchasing power of money goes up instead and prices fall. This might sound good because it means your money is worth more, but it can cause some weird disastrous effects. I mean, nothing that sounds like a deflating balloon is a good thing. For example, During deflation, cash money goes up in value. So people don't want to spend their money or invest it, because why would you, when you can essentially earn money by leaving it locked away? This happened in Japan, where deflation caused people to save up money instead of spending, while businesses had to supply and produce less due to the lower prices. This meant more people were laid off and lower wages were paid, further reducing demand, which dropped prices even more. This led to a vicious cycle called the deflationary spiral, which ended up causing a huge recession. Okay, so deflation is bad. What about too much inflation? Well, we've already talked about one reason inflation is bad. It eats away your purchasing power. And if you're not getting appropriate wage increases, you're essentially taking pay cuts and less able to afford buying important things like food or fuel. This can lead to an inflationary cycle as well, just like deflation. It goes like this. Inflation makes the cost of living go up. So workers demand higher wages to match the inflation rate. Sounds reasonable. But because of the higher wages, the cost of labor rises for companies, while they also get affected by the higher price of raw materials and logistics. To offset the increase in costs, producers will charge higher prices, which results in more inflation. And we're back in a vicious cycle. To make it even worse, as inflation gets worse, people expect things to get worse. This means that people expect prices to keep rising, so they feel pressure to buy things now before prices go up even more. This leads to excess demand and more money circulating, which, again, worsens inflation because too much money is chasing too few goods. Some people might even hoard goods like toilet paper, which drives up prices more because there's less supply around. When these kinds of inflationary cycles get out of control, the inflation rate can blow up exponentially. In some cases, the inflation rate can go above 50% per month. This means that every month, prices are rising by 50%. This equates to an annual inflation rate of 13,000%, a lot higher than the 7 or 8% we're dealing with right now. This phenomenon is called hyperinflation, which isn't a really hype-worthy thing at all. You'd think something crazy like that would never happen, an inflation rate more than 10, but it's actually happened quite frequently throughout history. The most famous example of hyperinflation is that of the Weimar Republic of Germany in 1923. Brief history lesson time. World War I ended in 1918 with the defeat of Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire and some other countries. As part of the Treaty of Versailles, where the victorious Allied powers demanded settlements and reparation damage for the war, Germany was forced to pay a total sum of 132 billion gold marks which in today's money is roughly $442 US dollars. So yeah, a lot of money. So Germany was not only recuperating from its own debts and economic losses from the war, but now it also had this whopping big fine to pay. And turns out it was too big to pay, because Germany's economy just couldn't produce enough to meet the minimum repayments, especially when it still had a country to feed and shelter. And this only got worse when the Allied powers were like, oh, you, you can't pay? Then we better take some fingers and occupied the Ruhr valley of Germany, which happened to be the most heavily industrialized region, making Germany even less able to pay back the money. This crushed the German economy because all the goods produced by the economy were being funneled out as war operations, and a lot of young workers had already died in the war. But then, the German government came up with a clever idea. What if... They just printed more money. <laughs> uh, then they could use the newly printed money to buy foreign currencies and pay back the debt. Easy peasy, hack this economics thing. Except this turned out to be a very bad move because we've learned what happens when there's too much money floating around for too few goods. That's right, it's our old friend inflation. As the German government printed all of this new money, the money supply greatly increased and made the money worth a lot less just like a scenario where everyone won Lotto. If everyone is rich, no one is rich. This showed in prices skyrocketing. At the end of 1922, a loaf of bread cost 160 marks, which was the currency of Germany at the time. By the late 1923, a year later, it cost 200. Oh, 200 marks? Jeez, that's a 25% inflation rate. That is pretty bad. Oh, 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 what's that? Oh, sorry, it turns out it was 200 billion marks. Yes, you heard me, that's 2 with 11 zeros after it. The hyperinflation of Weimar Germany is estimated to have peaked at an annual inflation rate of 29,500%. Now it's important to note that it wasn't only because they printed too much money that the hyperinflation happened. There's all the other factors like post-war economic recovery, low labour force, unemployment, inflationary cycle, etc. That said, it's still probably the biggest contributor. It's a really good lesson that you really can't create something out of nothing. You can't just print money and become rich. There are invisible economic forces that will punish you. So yeah, thanks to the ridiculous hyperinflation of 29,500%, the German mark quickly became near worthless. The banks had to print higher and higher denominations of money because you can't just rock up to the bakery with two billion hundred mark notes. You need some billion mark notes to make it more manageable. Prices rose so quickly that businesses had to update their price tags regularly, more than once a day, just to keep up. After a certain inflation rate, prices were basically going up in increments of adding zeros to the end, which would have looked ridiculous. And of course when the value of money is plummeting like that, money itself became kind of useless. People started using paper money as wallpaper or burning it for heat because it was worth more as fuel than using it as a currency. The worst part is that the German hyperinflation wasn't even the worst in history. Zimbabwe had a horrific hyperinflation in the 2000s, again because the government recklessly printed lots of money, causing inflation rates of 79 billion percent per year, which translates to a daily inflation of 98%. That means prices were literally doubling every day. And we know how dangerous doubling is. Exponential growth, baby. Venezuela recently suffered hyperinflation as well. There's no reliable estimate, because the government just gave up measuring after 2 million percent per year, but it's estimated to have peaked somewhere between 10 and 53 million percent. But none of this holds a candle to Hungary's hyperinflation of 1941. At one point, inflation was at 150,000 percent per day. This means that if on day one something is priced at 10 cents, the next day it would be priced at $150. Then on the third day, it would cost $225,000. The peak annual inflation rate for Hungary was 4.19 times 10 to the power of 16%, or 42 quadrillion percent. Yeah, it's never a good thing if you have to express your inflation rate in scientific notation. It was so bad that it produced the world's highest denomination of money ever, the 100 quintillion pingo note. That's 10 to the power of 21, or 1 with 22 zeros after it. When you have inflation this bad, it can just wipe out people's wealth because suddenly all of your money becomes worthless. Prices often rise a lot quicker than wages, which hurts the lower and middle class people first, directly hurting their ability to afford basic necessities like food and rent. So obviously we don't want a situation like Germany or Zimbabwe or Hungary where prices are doubling every day. Which means, we need to learn about what governments and central banks can do to rein in inflation rates, before they get into crazy vicious cycles. But before that, let's finish the topic of hyperinflation first. How did these crazy situations end? Well, we mentioned that the key issue in many of these examples were that the government was just printing out money, which made the money worth less, because there were more to go around. Just like how first edition books are way more valuable than the -the run-of-the-mill mass-printed books that come after it, low supply and high demand fetches a high price. It's the exact same for money. So, believe it or not, the solution in most of these countries that had hyperinflation was to stop printing new money. Seriously, there's no point trying to fix something if you haven't fixed the main cause. But this usually isn't enough. Even if you stop printing new money, it would take years, decades, maybe even centuries before inflation rates of a million percent would come down naturally. So in most cases, these countries had to start over with their money system. In Weimar Germany, they stopped printing marks and instead created a new currency called Rentenmark, which is refixed to gold bonds to fix their value. Conveniently, the Rentenmark was worth exactly 1 trillion marks, which means that shops could just delete 12 zeros from the end of their price and voila, you had a new, much more reasonable price based on the new currency. In the case of Zimbabwe, they just adopted other stable currencies such as the US dollar or the South African currency instead. Alright, so let's talk about what can actually be done to prevent hyperinflation from happening in the first place. Monetary Policy As we mentioned before, inflation happens when too much money chases too few goods. I know I keep repeating the point, but that's because we really need to drive that point home to make sense of monetary Policy. We could see this in the hyperinflation example. If you print too much money, you have way too much money available for the same amount of goods, which leads to rampant inflation. So the cure to inflation is to reduce the money supply. This can come in various forms, none of which involves burning a whole bunch of cash, so please don't do that at home, it's actually illegal. Anyway, these various forms tie into the 3 causes of inflation, conveniently, which we talked about throughout this episode. One obvious cause of inflation is when the government or central bank prints excess money. If this is the case, they need to stop doing that. You might be wondering what idiots would repeat the same mistakes as the past, but there are legitimate reasons to print new money. For example, money constantly gets lost or damaged and taken out of circulation, so they need to keep printing replacements to ensure there are adequate supplies. But also, there's this economic principle called the window of opportunity, where when you print new money... It can do a lot of good before the value of money falls, such as letting consumers buy more goods and producers to get more capital and pay their employees better, which increases overall production and boosts the economy. We'll talk more about this when we talk about stimulus packages later in the episode. Anyway, that's cause number one. The second cause of inflation is what's called cost-push inflation, where producers push the extra cost of production, such as higher oil prices or raised wages, to the consumers by increasing price. An example was during the 1970s in the USA, when oil prices skyrocketed due to oil cartel OPEC jacking the price of petroleum. This led to a massive cost-push inflation, while also decreasing production and demand, a dangerous state known as stagflation, because everyone faced the extra cost of petrol, both producers and consumers, and output was dropping. Unfortunately, there's not too much you can do economically to change supply in the market. So instead, we focus on demand, which is the third and most common cause of inflation. The third cause, demand-pull-inflation, is what happened in the example of everyone winning the lottery and suddenly having lots of money, letting them buy whatever they wanted. Here the key issue is that there is too much demand, because there's too much money. See, it's that same principle again. Too much money, chasing too few goods. Did you get that tattooed at this stage? Anyway. Economists figured out that the best way to control inflation is to adjust how much total demand there is in the economy, known as aggregate demand. Nowadays, the way this is done is with one simple tool, interest rates. Simply put, most governments have some kind of centralized bank that regulates all the big banks of the country, and to keep an eye on the economy. This bank, which is the Reserve Bank in New Zealand and the Fed in the USA, gets to set its own interest rate, which is used for all money that it lends to the big banks. Put simply, it's a guide for what interest rates should be on any kind of big loan that banks would give out to consumers, such as credit card loans and mortgages, because the banks themselves are borrowing at least that rate. Again, each central bank has its own name for this central interest rate. In New Zealand, we call it the Official Cash Rate, or OCR, whereas in the US, it's the Federal Funds Rate, although I think they just call it the Interest Rate. These are words you would have heard a lot on the news recently, because many countries are seeing their interest rates going up and up and up this year, causing lots of fear and uncertainty for 23. For simplicity's sake, let's just keep calling it the interest rate. Alright, so what's the deal with this? Does it mean that the central bank just set a really high interest rate on all their loans to the banks to rake in money like some loan shark? Thankfully, no. The central banks exist to protect the economy, rather than acting on individual or corporate self-interest, which free markets rely on. So let's see how the Fed and RBNZ can use the interest rate to affect the economy, and, specifically, inflation. Let's say that the interest rate has been 2% in New Zealand during 2021. This means that banks have to borrow from RBNZ at 2% interest, as in every year they have to pay back 2% of the loan amount, extra, as interest. Because if banks don't want to lose money, then they loan out their money that's being borrowed from the RBNZ, and then charge an interest rate slightly higher, like 2.5%. This is particularly relevant for mortgages, but it goes both ways. Like, if you have a savings account or a term deposit, the bank will give you interest of 2.5% on your money that they borrowed from you. So now you know what the interest rate actually does, we can start playing around with it. Let's say that inflation rates are going up, and the Fed wants to bring it down under control. We've already discussed that the best thing you can do is to reduce overall demand. But you can't just go screaming from the rooftop telling people, stop buying things like ice cream and new cars, it's bad. People will be like, nah, screw you, I'm gonna buy two ice creams instead. So the Fed instead will alter the interest rate. Specifically, they increase the interest rate. This means that banks will have to pay more interest to borrow money from. Huh, how does that affect consumer demand though? Well, the banks use this new higher interest rate as the basis for their own interest rates. Meaning now, mortgages and other personal loans are a lot more expensive. Because it's more expensive to borrow money, people generally have less money to spend. Hooray! We've decreased the money supply! The best example is of the housing market. When interest rates were super low, like 1-2%, people were more willing to buy a new house because the mortgage was more manageable. You could pay off more chunks of the mortgage instead of just paying off the interest. But now that interest rates are rising, people are less likely to buy new houses or might even have to sell their house because they can't afford to pay even the interest of their mortgage. And if you're saving up for a new house or having to downsize, you're probably not in the mood to spend your cash buying new TV or getting fancy Duck Island ice cream. You have to buy Tip Top instead. And that's the gist of monetary policy the economic policy of using the interest rate to influence demand. The opposite holds true as well. If you want people to spend more money to stimulate economic growth and avoid deflation, then you decrease the interest rate, so it's cheaper to borrow money. It's as simple as that. Alright, let's do a quick recap of inflation and monetary policy before we go over what's happening with inflation in 2022. Firstly, inflation is the steady rising of price because money is less valuable. It's caused by too much money chasing too few goods, which can be because people have more money to spend, or they're worried that prices will rise and they want to buy things right now. Secondly, inflation can erode away people's wealth and their purchasing power, because wages often don't go up at the same rate as inflation, which means you can't buy as much with the same paycheck compared to the previous year. Thirdly, to keep inflation under control, the central bank can adjust the interest rate, because if it's more expensive to borrow money, people will have less money to spend, which cools off demand and slows down inflation. So let's put all of this into practice and discuss what happened in 2022, and why everyone is suddenly so worried about inflation and the interest rate. 2022 has been a weird year, but then again, we're living in weird times, and I'm pretty sure we've been saying this is the darkest timeline since at least 2016. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about inflation on today's episode is because it has been a hot topic on the news lately, particularly with record high interest rate raises and lots of uncertainty about the economy in 2023. To highlight the extent of the inflation issue in 2022, we can look at prices, just like economists. As of June 2022, according to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, food prices are up 10.4% in the past 12 months, electricity is 13.7% more expensive and petrol is a whopping 59.9% more expensive. But remember, just because petrol prices are up by 60%, it doesn't mean that the overall inflation rate is 60%. We have to look at the consumer basket and the consumer price index, which averages out all of the common goods and services a regular household would need to buy. Accounting for this, the real inflation rate in the US is somewhere between 75 to 8% at the time of this recording. Remember that we like to keep inflation at 1-3%? Well, yeah, this is much higher. In fact, inflation rates hovered around 2% for the past decade in the US, but it's only since early to mid-2021 that it started shooting up to the current figures. And the US isn't alone in this. Europe is experiencing about 10% inflation, a record rate for the Eurozone. New Zealand, where I live, is also suffering 7.2% inflation. UK, 11%. South Africa, 7.6%. Singapore 6.7%, everyone is feeling the price hikes in the past year. Even the world inflation rate has gone from 1.9% in 2020, 3.4% in 2021, to a whopping 8% in August 2022. We can feel the effects tangibly. Grocery bills are higher, $20 will get you much less petrol than a couple of years ago, businesses are closing because they can't match the rising resource costs and house prices are starting to fall because people can't afford to buy new houses at the higher interest rates. The problem is worsened by the fact that most people aren't getting adequate pay rises this year to match the high inflation. For example, in the US, average wages are up by 5.1%, but due to inflation, most people are earning 3.6% less. This is what it feels like to have less purchasing power. Many people are concerned that we're heading into an economic recession in 2023, which is when the economy is shrinking rather than growing. This means that the total economic output of countries will shrink, measured in GDP or gross domestic product. People will have less money to spend because more people will be laid off as businesses are earning less money and prices are high. Overall, life will likely get harder as people can't spend as much and have to worry about their finances, such as when mortgage interest rates and the cost of living rises. This leads to all sorts of other social problems, such as increased homelessness, crime activity, depression, and suicide rates. So why is this happening? What's caused this wave of inflation? Well, like with every major thing in the world, it's a complex web of different factors. So let's try to break it up in chunks and apply what we learned today. Firstly, there's the obvious elephant in the room, COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic changed the world in various ways, and the economy felt it for sure. For one, there were long periods, especially in 2020 and 2021, when the world ground to a halt due to quarantines and lockdowns. This meant people weren't going to the shopping mall, people weren't driving so there was no reason to buy petrol, businesses had to shut down or significantly reduce their work. Overall, there was a major shrinkage in demand and supply all across the board. But importantly, while supply dropped off massively due to business closures, logistical challenges, and lack of labour force, demand didn't drop as much because people could still buy things online. In fact, demand went up for a lot of things as people needed ways to spend time at home, so things like bicycles, exercise gear, home office equipment, and sourdough making tools shot up in demand. Hmm, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Too much demand for too few supply? What does that cause again? That's right, inflation. Let's take bicycles for example. Demand for bicycles went up significantly as people wanted to exercise more and people had more money available because they weren't spending it on other things like commutes and takeaway coffees. But China was in lockdown right from the start of the pandemic so many factories were shut and bicycle production was right down. So bicycle prices surged because people would buy it at the higher price as long as they could ride a damn bicycle. Which means prices just kept getting higher, as people were desperate enough to buy a bike at any cost for the exercise, they had money saved up from not spending it elsewhere, and suppliers couldn't produce enough bikes for everyone. This is an example of demand-pull inflation, which we discussed as one of the major causes of inflation. What about the other causes of inflation? Well, we mentioned cost-push inflation, where suppliers pass on the rising cost of production to the consumer in the form of higher prices. We've seen this in the bicycle example, but to be honest, it's happening everywhere. Supply chains have been severely disrupted in the last two years due to reduced transports during major lockdowns, factory shutdowns, shifting of resources to focus on medical products such as PPE and ventilators, and people not being able to come to work because they are in lockdown, sick, or worse, dead. There are hundreds and thousands of ways supply was disrupted. But one way or another, it caused a massive disruption that not only reduced total supply, but it made it really expensive to produce things. And unfortunately, we're still seeing this supply shock. The price of building material remains super high in New Zealand because there's not enough being produced and imported. Postal services are still severely delayed to the annoyance of everybody. This supply shock is also made a lot worse by the huge culture change in the last two years, described as the quote-unquote great resignation, where more people are choosing to focus on work-life balance by changing professions, reducing work hours, or leaving for greener pastures, where they're getting paid better. Part of this is also exacerbated by the fact that people are not being remunerated or respected enough for their hard work, so people feel like it's not worth being in that job. Take critical workers such as nurses and teachers who work grueling hours and pour in a lot of emotional labor, only to be downtrodden and paid poorly continuously while being thanked by management and governments in claps and empty words. Add to this that COVID is still around and ever-evolving to escape our immunities and vaccines, causing a lot of people to be off-sick, and you now have another reason for a major supply shock, a significant lack of labour forces. Plus, because prices are rising, workers need appropriate pay raises to maintain their purchasing power, which then makes employing people more expensive, so businesses are having to lay off more people, which worsens the whole situation. Then there's the other elephant in the room, making everything worse, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're not going into the details of the war and the context behind it, but thanks to the atrocious acts of Russia, there is now a major global conflict that is causing various economic shocks, such as stock market disruptions and oil supply issues. Because Russia is a major exporter of oil, and people are naturally moving away from buying Russia's oil in condemnation of the invasion, so now oil is more expensive again, cost of production goes up, prices go up, consumers have to spend more on fuel, Yada yadda yada. inflation. And then there is the other issue of an increase in the money supply due to government policies, the third cause of inflation that we discussed. While most countries didn't suddenly print a lot of money, many governments chose to inject more money into the money supply in the form of various policies that we collectively call stimulus packages. This might involve directly giving people a cheque, like with the America Rescue Plan, but also increasing government spending on infrastructure projects, which hires more people and provides them more income, and lowering interest rates so borrowing is cheaper, giving consumers more money to spend on things. These policies were very important because the economy was already facing disaster thanks to COVID, with production and spending way down. We were already headed for a major recession before 2022, But these stimulus packages allowed both demand and supply to be boosted, which allowed the economy to keep growing, despite being shot in the knee, metaphorically speaking. Specifically, it helped the low- to middle-class workers more because they were the people at risk of losing jobs, as opposed to high-income families where they were more likely to keep their jobs. But the major side effect of all of this was the downwind effect of inflation, which we're seeing now. And again, most economists argue that these expansionary policies saved us from a major recession, and the economy would have been much, much worse without any action. So it's possible that it was not necessary evil. As you can see, we live in a world that is built on a ridiculously complex web of complex systems with complex mechanisms. So as tempting it is to blame one thing, like, oh President Biden caused inflation with a stimulus package. Or if only Putin didn't invade Ukraine, we wouldn't have high mortgage rates. Or COVID ruined everything. It's much more important to take a step back and look at all of the different factors that might be causing the outcome. And that's what we're trying to do on this podcast. The more fully you understand various complex mechanisms and systems and concepts, the better you can navigate the world based on facts and knowledge and wisdom, rather than unproductive emotions like rage and fear and anxiety. It's important to let yourself feel anger and worry and despair, but if we don't understand why things are happening then we can't even begin to work out how we can fix and improve things. On that note, let's call it a day. Please note that this is by no means a comprehensive analysis of the causes of inflation surge of 2022, but more meant to be a guide of some of the more important factors that led to the world we currently live in. So as always, if you're interested, please do your own research and read widely and deeply on the matter to get an even better understanding of everything. So what did we learn today? We learned that inflation is when prices rise with time, because there's too much demand for too few things, making money worth less with time. We learned how economics functions, based on the laws of demand and the laws of supply. We learned how different factors can cause inflation, such as demand pull, cost push, and governments printing more money. We learned that if inflation goes out of control, you can get hyperinflation, where prices skyrocket exponentially until all of your money becomes, you know, worthless. We learned how governments can somewhat control inflation with the clever use of interest rates, which can affect spending and borrowing to reduce demand. We learned how all of these principles apply to the last few years, with things such as COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, and other cultural changes and disruptions, led to the current inflation surge that we're experiencing in 2022. Well, that's it for today. We'll skip the two-minute explain today since we talked about the 2022 inflation surge instead. Thank you for listening to Explain This. Hope you've learned something interesting and maybe even useful today. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Explain This was written and hosted by me, Jin Kim. If you'd like to suggest a topic or just send a lovely message, you can email me at explainthiscast@gmail.com at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook or Twitter,